3: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts.
1: I'm Francis Durnley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss reports of Ukraine's new drone army, hear exclusively from Britain's new defence secretary, and evaluate the political crisis evolving in the Balkans and what it tells us about Putin's strategy to undermine NATO.
4: Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward
5: you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break
1: us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 3rd of October, one year and 221 days since the full-scale invasion began, and today I'm joined by our Associate Editor of Defence, Dominic Nichols, our Defence Editor, Daniel Sheridan, and calling in from Washington DC, Dr Ivana Stradner of the Foundation for Defence of Democracies. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from the front lines.
4: Well, thanks, Francis. Hello and hi, everybody. So let's start with comments from Ukraine's Deputy Prime Minister, Mikhailo Fedorov. He's also the country's Digital Transformation Minister. But he's been making comments this morning saying how in September, Ukraine hit the record number of targets over the last week with drones. He says over the last week, 220 separate pieces of Russian equipment have been hit. 33 tanks, 41 trucks, over a dozen artillery pieces. He says more damaged artillery means fewer shells at our military positions and frontline cities. Now, he doesn't give any figures at all on how many have been downed, so it might be, who knows, it might just be an extrapolation of of numbers. It might be flying many, many more. But also, I do think they've changed, if not tactics recently, but certainly their operating procedures in light of the responses from Russia. As always, these things... No, it's like fighter jets and anti-air missiles. The One side gets a technical leap on the other, then the missile takes over, then the next iteration of jet and so on and so forth. So I think a lot of drones have been downed by electronic warfare means, just jamming the signal. So it just they just fall out of the sky or safely land or, in some cases, go back to their base. And earlier in the war, I haven't seen this for a few months now, but earlier in the war there were instances, reported instances, we don't know if they actually really happened, whereby the signal was interfered with and Russian drones were going back to their home location and then being followed up with artillery. That might be apocryphal I don't know but I'm just saying that this constant battle between electronic warfare in this case and the drone is going on and I think from what I've seen in the last few weeks Ukraine are now using more airborne rebroadcast systems, so a drone that actually retransmits the signal and is able to hop between frequencies so if you're on let's say channel number one and Russia's jamming that channel the drone's able to detect that and switch to channel two and so on and so on so I think the drones are becoming more survivable for the moment but like I say it will be only Only a technological leap before that sort of nullifies it. But for now, Mikhailo Fedorov giving some stats there about how effective these things are. As I say, no figures on how many they they lost. And of course, they're, they're not giving figures on how many systems they've lost to Russian drones. Separately, uh, Ukraine's air force said it destroyed 30 attack drones on one cruise missile. Uh, an aerial attack last night, more than three hours, mostly targeted the regions of Mykolaiv, which is roughly between Odessa and Hezon down south, and Dnipropetrovsk, which is about 50 k's north of Zaporizhia. That came out of Ukraine's southern command. Next, we've got a report in today from Penelope Smith, one of our colleagues here, that first reported by Reuters, actually, mutinous Russian soldiers and convicts who have been pressed into fighting units that are known as Storm Z squads, said for the Russian moniker for the war, and they're being pushed to the hardest uh, areas of the front line. So these squads, said to be between 100 and 150 people strong, embedded in regular units, typically sent to the most exposed parts of the front, and just pushed forward basically as, as sort of penal columns. So Reuters had an interview with 13 people with knowledge, including five fighters who said they had been in these units, One soldier who had been in Bakhmut in May and June said these storm fighters, they're just meat. Now, these are mostly formed around a court of convicts, but some regular soldiers are apparently assigned to them for disciplinary offences such as being drunk on duty, using drugs, refusing to carry out orders, that, that kind of thing. Now, at the moment, Russian legislation on military discipline, as much as we know, says a soldier can only be transferred to a penal unit if convicted by a military court. Reuters asked that question, and none of the people they spoke to said that anyone being sent to these Storm Z squads had had any kind of court hearing whatsoever. Also today, now Russia's holding nationwide drills today, simulating the evacuation of civilians during a nuclear war. This came from um, leaked documents published by Russian media outlet Barza. So quite how leaked they were, we're not sure. They say today's exercises will test Russian workers' readiness to remove large numbers of people from hypothetical radiation zones. I mean, we don't know how scripted it all is, how many civilians, if any, are going to be involved. They do. Russia does hold civil defence drills annually, but this is thought to be the first time that an exercise on this scale is going to be held simultaneously in places all over the country. And obviously, you may have caught the news last week that the head of Russia's leading nuclear energy research centre was calling on the Kremlin to stage an atomic weapons test in the Arctic Ocean as a show of force. So it might all be part of a choreographed sort of nuclear saber-rattling effort. And then just finally... Sergei Shoigu's popped up on TV last night. He said Russia has no plans for an additional mobilisation of troops. Uh, as he says, hundreds of thousands of men have signed up this year to serve uh, in the forces. He was on state TV addressing a load of generals. He said the armed forces um, have the necessary number of military personnel to conduct this special military nonsense. He didn't say the nonsense bit. Since the start of the year, he said more than 335,000 people have entered military service under contracts and in volunteer formations. said more than 50,000 signed up in September alone. Now, we don't know about these numbers. Obviously, we can't verify these numbers. We don't know how many of these come from volunteer units such as Wagner. We don't know how many of these are pressed, what incentives there are, how many of them are, if not coming from the jails, are as part of the what might be termed the judicial process in russia they might be told custodial sentence or go and join the army so we just don't know but we know that that after Putin's partial mobilization as they described it in September last year three hundred thousand reservists that we know that prompted a flight of fighting age males we know they're very reluctant to do anything along the mobilization front formally again but they have been mobilizing by stealth as we had yesterday actually I had an article yesterday written by Britain's former Defence Secretary Ben Wallace when he was talking about that. So, yeah, we don't know. They're, they're getting the numbers, but of course that's just one one part of military capability as we've spoken many, many times. You've then got to house them, train them, feed them, equip them, all the rest of it. So, you know, uh, fine, Sergei so, you going out of his way, obviously been told to, uh, to say that they're not, to, this is for domestic consumption, I would suggest, not going to need a mobilisation, but really I think the
1: mobilisation on the quiet is, uh, is continuing. And I'll take a little pause there, Francis. Thanks, Dom. Turning to the political realm, later in the podcast, we'll hear excerpts from our exclusive interview with the new British Defence Secretary, Grant Shapps, at Conservative Party conference in Manchester, where David currently is, no doubt, bleary-eyed. For context, Mr Shapps gave another interview to us over the weekend, which has sparked considerable comment, not least from the Russians. He seemed to suggest that Britain will ramp up its training programme for Ukrainian soldiers under plans being discussed with military chiefs, saying that he'd held talks with army leaders about moving more training and production of military equipment into Ukraine itself, and also calling on British defence firms to set up factories in the countries. Now, this obviously led our ears to prick up because Western countries have been very hesitant to move any training in country into Ukraine for fear of the consequences of a stray missile landing and killing NATO forces. But this interview seemed to suggest, and I put a lot of emphasis on that word, that Britain would be reconsidering that Approach. I should say that he also said in the interview that he wanted to see an increase in defence spending to 3% of GDP, saying that the government's current target of 25 was a staging post. And he also said that Britain was finding ways to help Ukraine shape up for NATO membership. So it was quite a wide rating interview. But Don, before I go to the rest of the political updates, what did you make of it? I was very surprised. I didn't
4: really believe it. I mean, I believe that he said those words. I think think he just misspoke, basically. I mean, there is is zero chance of Britain putting uniformed service personnel inside Ukraine at the moment. We can speculate all stuff about special forces, as we have done before. But in this area, training, it just ain't going to happen. Now, whether he... He misspoke or he came out the blocks a bit quickly in one of his first media engagements as Defence Secretary. I mean, there there is an aspiration, of course, to get back to training. Op Orbital, which was the training mechanism before... February the 24th last year. That trained 22,000 Ukrainian service personnel in, in, in basic infantry skills. I went out and visited it in 2018, I think. I was out there with um, with my friend and colleague, Johnny Bill from the BBC. We went out and visited Op Orbital. Many people have. So there is obviously a, 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 an established mechanism for doing that. And that's something they would like to get back to after the war, clearly. And that will invariably involve being inside the country. But I think for now, there is zero chance of non Ukrainian military personnel especially from NATO going into the country. Now what they might be doing they might be doing this concept called train the trainer which is as the name suggests you, you train a cadre of people who then go on and deliver that training across the units. It's a way of getting more people a great number of people trained in a, in a or as many people in as shorter space of time as possible. So that train the trainer process which is undoubtedly going on as well as as we speak outside the country, there might be a a move to to, to move that. So have Ukrainian trainers then go back and deliver this training inside. I mean, look, training takes space. It takes time and space. You, you've got to have training areas to shoot guns, big safety distances. You can't just do it in the middle of a town, so on and so forth. You've got to have barrack blocks, all the rest of it. So that's quite a, a large footprint. You can see that. You can see it from space. You can literally see it if you've got. GRU agents running around on the ground looking for these things. So they are targets they would present themselves as targets and you'd be able to work out where they are if you put enough effort into it. So I think it's extraordinarily, extremely unlikely that large-scale training, especially by Western militaries, will be taking place inside Ukraine whilst there is still a war on. But he did say those words. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak tried to add a bit more context and basically said, there's no way we're, we're deploying people inside Ukraine right now. So I think it was just a bit of... He stumbled he tumbled over his words a little bit, allowed an inference to be to be bedded in when it probably didn't have the right to be there. But I think it was cleared up fairly quickly, I
1: I hope. Thanks, Dom. Now, continuing with the political updates, we learned today that Warsaw and Kyiv have agreed a deal to speed up the transit of Ukrainian grain exports through Poland to third countries, signalling a possible breakthrough in their row over the issue. So I'll read a quote from the Polish agriculture minister. From tomorrow, grains that transit to world markets via Lithuania will undergo checks at a Lithuanian port and not at the Poland-Ukraine border, he told journalists. Now, one could argue they're simply palming off the issue, but at least it signals that progress is being made over the issue of grain imports into Europe. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see some further developments on this Over the coming days. Now, Dom mentioned the nationwide drills simulating the evacuation of civilians during a nuclear war in Russia. Now, it may well just be drills for the Russians going into bunkers, just an exercise, but for many Ukrainians, it is a daily fact of life. And some news from today from Kharkiv underlines that starkly. So Ukraine's first fully underground school is to be built in the city, the mayor has said, in a bid to shield pupils from Russian attacks. Such a shelter will enable thousands of Kharkiv children to continue their safe face-to-face education, even during missile threats, the mayor said. The new school will meet the most modern regulatory requirements for protective structures. Now, as we've reported on, many schools in frontline regions have been forced to teach their students online throughout the war, uh, something with devastating consequences to children's education. Uh, As anyone who's worked with children during the lockdowns can attest, this has a major impact on online learning. Kharkiv, however, has organised some 60 separate classrooms throughout its metro stations to house more than a thousand children and teachers. Parts of the city, of course, lie less than 20 miles from the Russian border. So they know that the bombardment is not going to abate any time soon and have decided to make to take proactive measures with regard to education. Now, lastly, according to the British Ministry of Defence today, Russia is using a foreign agent tag to manipulate public opinion behind the Kremlin's pro-war anti-West narratives. So the ministry cites polling by the Russian Public Opinion Research Centre, which showed that 61% of people surveyed considered individuals or organisations deemed to be foreign agents by Moscow's as traitors who disseminate lies about the country. As the MOD states... Russia has broadened the foreign agent legislation since its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. The measures significantly narrow the information space within Russia, making it increasingly difficult to articulate any viewpoint, including dissenting about the war, which deviates from the official line. Now, the issue of Russian propaganda narratives has come into sharper focus recently due to the proliferation of pro-Moscow material online and in public debate. Listeners may be familiar with a viral meme posted by the owner of Twitter, Elon Musk, recently depicting a distressed looking Zelensky with the caption, when it's been five minutes and you haven't asked for a billion dollars in aid. A more crass tweet, frankly, would be hard to find, given the country is fighting for its life against an aggressor that's committed countless war crimes. Musk, to me, falls into the age-old trap of many experts in one sphere. They then fool themselves into thinking they must therefore be experts in everything. But I digress. These narratives, like the one that Musk shared there, are being pushed hard by Moscow, and we are beginning to see that they are landing Then there is the deliberate sanctioning of more and more individuals, such as ourselves, of course, and the expansion of the number of what are clearly Russian bots on social media. YouTube, too, appears to be being specifically targeted. Listeners have reached out to us describing how pro-Ukrainian content is continuously being flagged by bots to stall their promotion online. As one producer of such content writes... It appears that pro-Russian channels can show all sorts of morally dubious footage, but pro-Ukrainian channels are hammered by YouTube restrictions. This may have something to do with the mass reporting of pro-Ukrainian channels by Russian trolls sitting in their troll factories in St. Petersburg or Moscow. In all of these processes of trying to rectify the situation with YouTube, I'm getting absolutely nowhere and feel absolutely powerless. Now, as a result of all this, some are calling for people to boycott such platforms altogether. But if I can offer my personal opinion, I do think that's a mistake. We can't choose the hand we're dealt, only how to play it. If you abandon the town square, no new one is going to be built in the short term that has Twitter's reach and influence, or YouTube's for that matter. And your space in that square, your voice will be filled by another, most likely one of a different perspective, whose words will then more likely be read by politicians and others who rely on such platforms to measure public opinion. So instead, all we can do is double our efforts in sharing good work, liking it, reposting it, and encouraging it to reach new audiences. And just one final thought on this, I hear people say that this is really about free speech, that one cannot censor Russian narratives and not censor... Ukrainian ones when both are dealing ultimately in information warfare yes it is true that both are engaged in information warfare but i would argue that russia's whole war is built on a foundation of lies and distortions the ukrainians may bend the truth or conceal certain details but not not foundational in nature And neither is Ukraine deliberately peddling distortions designed to undermine Western democracies. So for me, this isn't a free speech issue, not least, or at least when we're talking about bots and official Russian mouthpieces. It's arguably a security issue. It's trespassed into a different realm entirely. But I welcome listeners' thoughts on that, because I know it's a contentious area. But I think we have, as I say, entered a different scale of debate now. And it needs to be spoken about in a different way. This is an aggressive campaign and one that Russia is arguably beginning to win. So it should be addressed and and quickly. Now, it's appropriate, given that, that we welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Ivana Stradner of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, calling in from Washington, D.C. Thank you very much for your time, Ivana. In your last interview on the podcast, we discussed at length the psychological and technical aspects of Russian disinformation in broad terms. I imagine we'll do so again today. But let's start with the opinion piece you've written for The Telegraph about the concerning events taking place in the Balkans. What exactly has been happening there and why is it relevant in your view to the war in Ukraine?
0: So, unfortunately, I always like to say when the Balkans is in the news every day, it's never a good sign. And that's exactly what's happening right now. So basically, three decades after the bloody breakup of Yugoslavia, recent clashes between Serbia and Kosovo, they have actually brought a simmering net to the point literally of boiling over in the West. And as the world, for example, just recently watched the chaos in Nagorno-Karabakh, there is another frozen conflict in Europe about to be unfrozen. Basically, there is another hybrid warfare effort in the Balkans, given the latest Kosovo Serbia crisis I will just speak in a moment. So I just published in The Telegraph a piece about how Putin has been truly candid about challenging and dismantling NATO. And I argue there basically I don't believe that right now Putin can attack Poland or the Baltic states, but he has been looking for weak links. And despite NATO's overall military superiority, it indeed has a weak hand in the Balkans that Putin continues to outmaneuver there. So what happened last week was, in my view, one of the worst confrontations since Kosovo declared independence from Serbia in two thousand and eight when 30 masked men uh, opened fire on a police patrol uh, very close to uh, near the village of Banska when four people died. Then they went to nearby Serbian Orthodox Monastery and they barricaded themselves the thing is, police found, and this is something very worrisome, an arsenal of weaponry that they basically seized, such as vehicles and armor personal carrier and mines and grenades and missile launchers and a lot of ammunition. And the real question is, who gave them this and why did they have such a thing. They also even found like a communication equipment with people and they were arrested and now there is an investigation going on. So Serbian president, he totally denied first any involvement and even he complained to Russia's ambassador that basically it's because it was prime minister who carried out brutal ethnic cleansing. And this is another interesting part what he claimed with the support of part in international community. So he first denied, but then Milan Radocic, who is the leader of the lista party and who is very close to Serbia as president, was indeed part of the group and he took the responsibility, which is a typical, you know, tactic. In my view, it would be impossible to carry such a, uh, such a terrorist attack without knowing and without providing equipment to the Serbs. So Kosovo leaders, they label it as a terrorist attack and the Serbian president, he just had an interview several days ago, basically he claimed you can kill a soul. Serbia will never recognize the independence of Kosovo. Uh, he said that monster creation that you made by bombing Serbia. So even the rhetorics and believe me, words matter are actually hitting up in the region. And this is actually really something that worries me a lot because i've been watching the balkans for a very long time and it has always been on the brink this is not the first crisis that occurred serbia already put several times its army on a high alert there were numerous problems with license plates in the past just a few months ago 30 nato peacekeepers were even injured by the serbs over there but this is worrisome because even the united states is just called them belgrade to pull its forces back from the border with Kosovo And they actually stated that this was an unprecedented uh, Serbian military buildup. So the White House says that Serbia deploys sophisticated tanks and artillery, which the Serbian president denied. And even the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, had a conversation with Aleksandar Vucic and asked him to immediate uh, de-escalation and return to a dialogue. So what is actually really uh, a dialogue? So there has been going on for several months an intense dialogue especially EU-led between Serbia and Kosovo on the normalization process. And at this point, I have to tell you that I don't believe that the dialogue will continue. I do actually believe that the escalation will uh, unfortunately continue. So now the real question is whether Serbia will enter the war with NATO, and I know for a lot of people they claim that this is impossible. That the Serbian army, will, it, it's just irrational decision, and I agree. But then there is a catch. Traditional warfare in the Balkans seem to be out of fashion. It's more likely that we'll see something similar to paramilitary gl- groups that uh, will continue to escalate in Kosovo and uh, to put the Balkans to the brink, which is a typical Milosevic script that he had used during the this is really nothing new um, and now also the question is NATO why NATO and why am I actually concerned about NATO Putin has been really trying to show that NATO is a paper tiger and the more Moscow loses on the battlefield, the more Putin will be desperate and try to show that indeed NATO is a paper tiger. So I'll just give you an example. I just mentioned that 30 peacekeepers were in, injured in clashes with ethnic Serbs when even the Russian minister uh, Lavrov he openly claimed that their major explosive situation is brewing in, in the heart of Europe. So that's number one thing. And this is precisely why NATO peacekeepers have to send a credible and capable signal that they are serious about this if something happens in the Balkans, in Kosovo in particular, that can easily spill over North Macedonia, which is a NATO member state. And I'll never forget in 2018, the Russian government, when North Macedonia decided to join NATO, they sent a threat basically claiming in any escalation between Russia and NATO, North Macedonia can become uh, a legitimate target. But in this whole chaos, there, there are a couple of positive news, which is, that NATO is actually increasing its presence of its peacekeeping forces, which is a really good sign. And also, I applaud the United Kingdom They decided actually to send uh, 600 soldiers to Kosovo. Uh, This is a really step in the right direction uh, that makes a lot of people in Russia and in Serbia, especially among the leadership, very uncomfortable. I also spoke in my piece about Russian involvement. So this was not clearly organized only from Serbia. Russia has been investing tremendous resources in the Balkans and to destabilize it. President Vucic, I don't believe that he's the victim of Russian influence. I believe that he strategically allows Russian influence because that allows him to have a bargaining chip with the West because he has been trying to balance between between Moscow, between Beijing, Brussels, and Washington. So by escalating crisis and then de-escalating the crisis, which is his master plan and has worked so far, he always positioned himself basically in the middle and as a pillar of stability to use that with its negotiations with the West. And it's needless to say, this really reminds me a lot on early years of Putin's power when he also positioned himself as a source of uh, as a source of stability in the eyes of the West, who never wanted to challenge him. Just gave him carrots but not sticks. And then the second question is what does really Russia want over there? I don't believe that Russia wants to roll on tanks and jets. They don't have to do that. Putin does not need to occupy the territory of the Balkans, but what Putin perfectly understands, and this is a true victory for the Kremlin, is he understands the culture. He understands how much ethnic tensions, the, indet- the identity politics playing in the region, something that a lot of Western analysts and policy makers do not understand. And he has been weaponizing that whether through the church, whether through the soft power, what I like to call invisible weapons for years, but also through visible weapons, because he also has been arming Serbia for a very long time. And in my view, no, he also has his own goals, which is basically to push the Balkans to the brink and re-establish Russia as the only reliable conflict negotiator in the region um, that would accomplish several goals, basically to strengthen Moscow's regional standing. And it also would give Putin leverage over Western powers if they want to keep conflict in the region from escalating. So that's how I strategically perceive this current situation. As I said, while sending the troops is a step in the right direction, there are a lot of things really still that in particular particular should do and to send a credible and capable signal to Belgrade and to Moscow that the alliance is serious.
1: Thank you, Ivana, for that very comprehensive overview of, of an issue that's really been neglected, I think it's fair to say, and we've touched on it several times on the podcast, trying to give increased attention to it, and you and I have spoken about it in the past. But how do you account for that lack of focus on it. Do you think it's because in a sense, the the world, the, the the press can only focus on one major international incident at a time and it being Ukraine at the moment? Or do you think it's the particular complexities of the Balkans? It's just too much for some people to get their heads around.
0: So there are a couple of things about that. First of all, we're living William... in a in the times of what I like to call ADHD foreign policy. So basically we focus on one thing and jump to another and we do not pay attention until really things escalate severely. And as long as there is no serious bloodshed, uh, people will not pay attention to it. I mean, let's call a spade a spade. In 2014, the Western media in large also ignored what happened in Ukraine up until 2022, February. So the problem with the Balkans is also that it's extremely complex because I just mentioned the escalation between Kosovo and Serbia. But also, this is the part of a larger problem that is happening right now in the Balkans. There is, for example, in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, you, for example, have Milora Dodik, who has been threatening with secessionist movements. Uh, he met with the Russian government officials recently. He has been threatening the whole constitutional standing in the country. Then you have also right now issues in uh, Montenegro huge polarization and also through the influence of the Serbian Orthodox Church. You will have that, for example, very soon. And you, I mean, I hope so, after the election. So even that it adds like a, a lot of problems to the crisis. And now the real question is for the Balkans, the West loves quick fixes. That's not going to work in the Balkans. The West really needs a very steady strategy that has to be implemented over the course of, I think, like several years. And some very unpleasant decisions that they have to make. Appeasing leaders, because the whole strategy, in my view, in the Balkans is, let's appease the greatest threats in the region, such as Vucic or Dodik. And if we give them whatever they want, there won't be no escalation. So basically, peace at any cost, which is a problem, and that will really fire back. On the other hand, you have Russia that has been investing tremendous resources. I can say tremendous, not in terms of economy, but in terms of security strategy. They do not have a grand strategy for the Balkans, but they've been investing exactly in the areas uh, that can serve to to advance uh, Russian uh, agenda. So this is precisely why still do believe that things will escalate in the Balkans until the West really opens its eyes and rise to the challenge and start really fixing the root of the problem, which is oftentimes very unpleasant for a lot of people in the West. Thank
4: you. And I know, Dom, you've got some questions as well. I do. I do. Thanks, Francis. And Ivana, thanks so much for joining us today. Lovely to to have you on. I visited Serbia in June 2021 with then Defence Secretary Ben Wallace. He met Prime Minister Vucic and also Defence Minister Nebojša Stefanovic. So I'd be really interested in your view on whether relationships have slid backwards since then or if they just paid lip service to it or was playing the Brits for fools at that time and then more broadly how much support do you think Vucic's nationalist ideas have and and how much difference would it make if he wasn't there? Would Putin still have as much of an opportunity to influence the region with other Serbian politicians?
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Dom, for your question. So first thing, you asked me a question prior to 2022, which was a very different situation, also in Serbia, because Vucic, as soon as he came to power, he realized that if he wants to stay for as long as possible, because his ultimate goal is indeed to retain a power. And in my view, he perceives himself as someone who can replace, the persona of Josip Broz Tito from the former Yugoslavia so his goal has always been really to balance between East and West and then to escalate the crisis and then to de-escalate and then to position himself as a source of stability and that's something he has really worked Uh, he literally has been playing the West like a fiddle because they thought if they give Vucic whatever he wants and if he's the source of stability, there won't be any problems in the Balkans. But let me tell you another thing, which is as soon as Vucic came to power, uh, he did exactly what Putin did at the early age of his political career, which was he destroyed uh, true opposition. He has been investing tremendous resources in the far-right groups. So basically, Without a democratic opposition and without pro-Western opposition, he is the one who can only serve uh, for the West as a moderate leader in the eyes of, of the West, which is absolutely not accurate. And we saw with his latest statements and interviews and how he perceives uh, this crisis, uh, this is his true face. And you asked me also the question about Russian influence in terms of different groups. So <clears throat> Russia has truly been investing tremendous in resources in the far right groups, not only in Serbia, but also in Bosnia, and Montenegro, because those groups, they can always mobilize to challenge any question that they want to challenge. Uh, whether it's the question of religion, uh, because Russia has been perfectly using with the help of serbia uh, the serbian orthodox church to further polarize the society especially for example in montenegro um, in serbia the problem is also that the far-right groups have not been certainly happy with the foreign policy of serbia as someone who grew up in serbia i've never seen so much nationalism in my life. Basically right now, the nationalism, especially among the youngsters, is very concerning. Because one thing that Serbia and Russia understood very well is that they also need to gather those young group of people to boost the nationalism, to have uh, the people who will support their foreign policy objectives. And let's not forget ideology. I understand oftentimes when I speak with Western analysts, it's all about cost benefit analysis. it's all about rational analysis, about why would even go to a war because all he cares about is to remain in power and get as much money as possible. I disagree with that because as any student of the Balkan history, no ideology really matters. The way that we study history, the way that we process information through emotions. What I like to say, one of the key words in the Balkans is uh, spite basically called inet because While you have the concept of the Russian world in Russia, you also have the concept of the Serbian world, which was indeed endorsed by the current director of intelligence agency in Serbia, who has very close ties to Russia. Let's also not forget that he also went to Moscow to basically seek the package of the regime preservation when uh, both Russia and Serbia agreed to fight together color revolutions, which really tells you all you need to know how Serbia is trying to isolate itself, etc. And now my last point, Dom, to your question is you will often hear President Vucic talking about the European Union. But if you carefully read his statements, he does not discuss the European Union membership. He discusses the European Union path. Why? Because for his political survival he also needs uh, western investments and western support so what a better way it really is to be on the european union path for decades and to receive all those funds that can help his political survival in the country and as a matter of fact he- Vucic is a very smart guy. He understands so well what will resonate with the West. So he has been selling this whole concept of, if you have Serbian economy, everything will be fantastic. He understood that's something that resonates with the West. And this is precisely why you had numerous economic initiatives coming from the West, thinking that they can solve the the crisis in the region. When I make a parallels to the early 90s with the collapse of the Soviet Union, everyone thought that by promoting free market and democracy, there was no way that we will have another conflict in Europe. And as a matter of fact, that was just another proof that neither economy nor appeasement actually work. And I'm afraid in 2023, we are making the same mistake. Whether this will escalate to the uh, level of the conflict in the 90s, nobody can tell you. But I'm very confident to say that this, what we saw last week, will not end there. As a matter of fact, I do believe that more escalations are on the horizon.
1: Well, thank you very much for that. Just one final question before we go to Daniel Sheridan. Moving on to the broader Russian disinformation campaigns we were talking about earlier, there are increased anxieties about uh, Russian bot activity on social media. Have you noticed an uptick in that, Ivana?
0: Absolutely. As a matter of fact, a lot of people have declared that Russia has lost the information war. I do believe that Russian information warfare is well and alive, and it's a tremendously important part of Russia's military strategy. information is the weapon that Russia has been using to target the West. Dom just recently in New France also mentioned nuclear escalations, and that's also the part of Russian military strategy to use it as a psychological weapon against the West, so to play our fears, Making a parallels with the Cold War and Armageddon scenarios, we stop supporting Ukraine, and believe me, like when you read Russian military strategies and statements, believe them when they say it. I'll just give a very concrete example. Russian military strategies, they openly claim that in the ongoing revolution, information technologies and information psychological warfare will largely play the ground for victory. And also the chief of staff of the Russian military, he openly claimed that Russia values non-military to military measures as to four to one. Russia has been investing tremendous resources in information space. And while I'm quite confident to say that a lot of our listeners today will laugh about Russian disinformation campaigns, as a matter of fact, the world does not revolve around the West. Uh, Russian disinformation campaigns are uh, very active and very efficient in places in the global South, indeed, including in the Balkans. So I do believe that that's something that we need to take very seriously. And Francis, what you just mentioned earlier today about twitter and the latest means coming from uh, the owner of this platform it's devastating because that's exactly how russia wants to win this war they want the west to stop supporting ukraine they understand very well that at some point the west will have to make certain decisions and it's a matter of who will blink first so until we start perceiving information warfare as literally De information war and not some random propaganda, etc cetera, etc, cetera, will have all those sorts of uh, problems. Russian disinformation campaigns are, are not going anywhere; they might not work in places such as London, Washington, or Brussels. But I do believe uh, what's happening, for example, in Africa or Latin America, those campaigns will continue. I do believe that with the upcoming elections in the United States, but also in European Union, uh, you will see very sophisticated Russian influence operations. And do not forget that Russia has started also using artificial intelligence. So that's something that will add additional hurdle to for the West on how to counter Russian propaganda. The problem is that while raising the awareness I'm afraid that the West is not willing and ready to go uh, on the offensive and to give Putin a taste of his own medicine. I do not believe that the West should spread disinformation campaigns because the truth is on our side. But I'll just give a very concrete example. Russia just literally threw Armenia under the bus, its ally. It was a wonderful opportunity for the U.S. to launch an offensive information campaign, spreading the truth that Russia is throwing its allies under the bus. That was one of the opportunities for us that we missed. And there were many, many more.
1: Thank you, Ivana. I look forward to hearing your final thoughts in a moment. But we wanted to end the episode today with our very own Daniel Sheridan, Defence Editor. Daniel, it's great to have you back on the podcast We've talked a little bit about the human cost of war today on soldiers and civilians, but you've been looking into one initiative called Girls Who Wait that supports Ukrainian women whose loved ones are fighting at the front. What can you tell us about this?
3: Yeah, like you said, it, it, it's a covering this war is as much about focusing on the human stories as much as the the ones that come out of the military, tactics, weapons. There's very much a human side to this. My stories in today's paper show the wide spectrum of this and what we as reporters cover. On the one hand, I've got a piece in regarding a senior military chief warning that the UK can't afford to give more weapons to Ukraine, um, that it simply cannot spare Another Challenger 2 tank on top of the 14, it's already gifted. And then on the other hand, I've written a story where I've interviewed these women who are really struggling with the fact that their partners have been sent to the front line and they go weeks, if not months, without communication. I learned about this group, Girls Who Wait which is an online platform, through a woman called Elena. She is my age, and she came over to the UK from her son when the war began. And we actually go to a dance class together, and she always looks quite sad. And we ended up getting into conversation about her personal situation And um, she did say to me, it's really hard to express how I feel to you because you don't get it. You don't know what it's like to have been dating someone and falling in love with them and then have them sent off to fight in a war, which is true, I don't. And this is where Girls Who Wait has come in because for the first time, she was able to find a, a, a safe place online where she can check in and actually speak to people who are in the exact same position as her and can give genuinely sound advice on what she should be doing and how she should be coping. And this group is led by a a psychologist called Maria Stetsiuk. She is Ukrainian and started the group because she knew exactly what it was like To see a loved one sent to the front line. We talk about the invasion of February 24, 2022. But this war started a long time ago. It began in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea. And it was then that Maria's friend was sent to the front line. And she was suddenly just felt completely at a loss, had no idea whether she was coming or going, how was the safety of her dear friend. And born out of that anxiety, she experienced, she created this online platform to help other women And there's something like a 1,000 women so far, and this number keeps growing of people joining the group. And it's pretty much serving as a lifeline to these people. And Maria gives advice on how to do life effectively when you're living in limbo. And it's simple things like trying not to focus on the fact that you don't know how your partner's doing, try not to allow it to preoccupy your everyday and instead make to-do lists, be active, keep yourself distracted until you hear word from them. But then there's inevitable anxieties when they haven't heard from their loved ones and women on the group are able to offer support and advice when a person is in that situation. But Frances and I were talking about this feature before I came on and we were both really moved by a quote that Maria gave to summarise the importance of this group. And she quoted Viktor Frankl, who was an Austrian psychotherapist who survived a Nazi concentration camp. And she thinks that this following quote really speaks to so many women today that are suffering the plight of a loved one being in a trench so many miles away from where they are. The first to break were those who believed it would soon be over. Then, those who didn't believe it would ever end. Those who survived were those who focused on their own affairs without expectation of what else might happen. And I think that is the real point of the Girls Who Wait group, is that you will go crazy if you think that everything is going to return to normal soon because this war is going to be over soon. We know that isn't what's going to happen. So what they need to do in order to stay sane and keep living is to accept that what happens is out of their control, but what they can still do is keep living.
1: That's very interesting. And Daniel, just whilst we've got you, it's been a while, as I say, that you've been on the podcast. Regular listeners will, of course, recall that when you were in Ukraine last year, you rescued a dog and brought it back with you to the UK. How is Andy?
3: Thanks for asking after her. She's great. She's very sassy. She's making lots of friends. We've recently moved to a new part of London and she's really enjoying that. And you know what, She's she feels like my daughter. I just love her to pieces. She is just the best thing that's ever happened to me. So yeah, she's really good. And maybe one day I'll be able to bring her into the office again.
1: Well, I'm sure listeners will appreciate that update. It's just time for our final thoughts now. Dom Nicholls, uh, where do you want to start? Just to say, I am watching through the window here Grant Shapps
4: in interview with our um, friend and colleague Camilla Tomini from The Telegraph, live now on The Space. So when you're listening to this on the pod, I think we'll have Camilla's interview afterwards. But he's just said a couple of interesting things. He was asked about Germany supplying more than than Britain... And he said of the Americans, their decision-making process is considerably slower, which I would question that anyway, but I would take a slightly slower decision-making process if they then weigh in with $150 billion, but maybe I'm looking at it the wrong way. And then just finally, this perception that that Britain was still not doing enough. He said, there are other ways of helping that I can't go into, but includes the information provided, all of which can stack up to something difficult to measure. Anyway, so very interesting comments there from Grant Shapp's new Defence Secretary, more from his interview with Camilla. Well worth a listen there,
1: Francis. It certainly will. And Danielle, I know you've been following this as well. Of course, it's part of your brief. Any reflections on what you've heard Mr. Shaps say?
3: Thank you. I really enjoyed the fact that he revealed his surname Shaps is actually of Polish origin, which provided quite a nice sidestep into the fact that he said, when discussing Poland, we will always be by their side in the same way we are by the side of the Ukrainians. And I thought that was quite a strong declaration to put out there on record. And they also discussed the potential rise of GDP and defence spending. And the question was presented to him as Liz trust when she was running to be Tory leader, said she'd commit to a rise of 3%. And Grant said, actually, that was my idea. And he doubled down on this. Obviously, he's not saying it's going to happen tomorrow. Nonetheless, it is, it's still good to have heard the Defence Secretary say that again on record. But ultimately, it was an interesting interview. And right at the start, it was put to him that he doesn't have this military background. And he said it's more important to understand how the political network works in order to run the mod and the military then focus on his credentials as to whether or not he ever served so he sounds like he's very confident in his new brief and i suppose watch this space
1: well thank you both very much for that Ivana, would you like the very last words today as our guest?
0: So today we discussed two major things, which is Russia's information warfare. And I still do believe that's an area we should be paying attention to because that's going to be a critical for the perception of this war, because this war will not only be one in the battlefield, it also has to be one in the information space for the sake of perception. And the second thing that I also want to raise the awareness of what's happening in the Balkans. I think that's also something to watch out and to pay attention to, and not only uh, between uh, Serbia and Kosovo, but also to pay attention to what's happening in Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, because uh, things are really going downhill in the Balkans.
1: Well, thank you very much for that, Ivana. The truth matters, uh, even if it's not necessarily what we want to hear. As you'll have just heard, during our broadcast earlier, Britain's new Defence Secretary Grant Shapps was speaking to a panel organised by The Telegraph at Conservative Party conference in Manchester. To conclude today's episode, here are extracts from that discussion relevant to the war in Ukraine.
2: Can we talk about Ukraine? Because I know you were with President Zelensky last week. Tell us what he said to you. What did he say he needed from the UK? Mm.
5: Well, first of all, it's probably worth just commenting on what he said to me about the UK, which he actually asked me to bring back, so I'll repeat it here, which is no country had done more than without us. It's quite possible the Ukraine would have fallen in the initial mm. few days. Remember, people thought 72 days and Kiev might be overrun, a puppet government installed. That didn't happen in part because we'd sent the end laws in advance and Ben Wallace had made a very sensible choice there. We'd done training, I think, about 20,000 troops in advance, and we were able to provide background information, intelligence I won't go into, but enough information. So we were pivotal. What President Zelensky said to me on Wednesday, which is actually a very moving point, he said that when this war is over, there'll be a new book written about the history of Ukraine, and in that book there'll be a blank first chapter, and we're going to invite Great Britain to write the first page. That is the extent of his appreciation of the British input, which I think is, although I think people know that we've been forward-leaning and one of the greatest supporters of free and democratic Ukraine, I don't think most people would realise until you go to Kiev, and I've done it a couple of times this summer, the extent to which our input is appreciated on the ground, from everyone, from people literally in cafes on the street yes. to the president.
2: But presumably he also asked for more weaponry.
5: So there's always a massive need for more. We've gifted a, a huge amount. We're having to go through our replenishment process as well now. Mm. Uh, I was down in Salisbury on Friday talking to the army about the, the gifting programme and, and what's left. Our role must be to make sure that others also step up to yes. the plate we started the Ukraine contact group, which is essentially defence ministers and chiefs of the general staff, typically, or, or defence staff, getting together. Uh, I met with them the week before last in Ramstein, in, in, in Germany. And we created that group of countries, handed over the leadership to the Americans. It has 50 countries in it. Oh, no, I understand and that others.
2: about kind of leading and the world. Of course,
5: but, if they. But Germany get, are
2: now supplying more than we are.
5: Some of this is difficult, technical. Detail for me to, to go into for all sorts of reasons, but if you look at things like the things which are really helping Ukraine at this stage, long-range Storm Shadow, for example, at the moment Britain and France have been the donors of, of those. But part of that is our our history after the Second World War. Yes, the, the Germans we, we have had to stu- go to their parliament to approve everything. I know, in a I know, and it, is, and it is. So our contribution is. I, I, I suppose the point I'm trying to make primarily is. And sometimes you have to leave this country to see how we are viewed. The point I'm trying to make is, from a Ukrainian point of view, uh, there isn't another country that has been more forward-leaning. And, of course, American can come in with the might and the size, but their decision-making process is considerably slower to get there.
2: I mean, I, I heard a stunning statistic today that seven years' worth of global weapons production has been used in the conflict in Ukraine, seven years' worth. My colleague Daniel Sheridan has a piece in The Telegraph this morning quoting a senior military chief who says that Britain has run out of defence equipment to donate. Can you comment on that? Well, it's
5: certainly the case that, obviously, we can't continue to donate equipment that you know, has yet to be replenished, and we've got to make sure that we look after the defence of our, our own nation as well. Uh, and some of the things we're donating are things that, in any case, we we're going to be replacing, for example, like the AS-90. And so, so yes, of course, there's a replenishment process, and we've announced money to, to do that, and we're working uh, through the details, and some of it's being replenished. But actually, increasingly, we're probably in a different phase of this war now. So this is the other thing that I discussed, both with Zelensky and with my opposite number, of, um, who's actually been in post less time than... I have in Ukraine and that is to make sure that we're manufacturing nearer to where it's being used BAE for example, BAE systems are going in to become the first foreign manufacturing in country to replenish some of, some of what's required. And
2: yet you are under pressure because, Wallace, your predecessor, has written a piece for us calling for that extra £2.3 billion, saying, finish the job. we have had Boris Johnson writing a piece in The Spectator last month. Why aren't we giving Ukraine what it needs? So there's a perception that we are still not doing enough, which presumably is shared by President Zelensky. No, I
5: don't, I mean, actually, as I probably the quote that I told you from our conversation demonstrates, that's not his... View as expressed to me, almost quite the opposite. And I want to just separate out a few things because, of course, there's the armaments, the things that you give them, the gifting in kind. There are other ways to assist as well, increasingly at the stage of the war. Things like the way that we help to finance production is very important. So UK export finance, where we have a £3.5 billion allowance or budget, is very important, will become increasingly important. Uh, there are other ways of helping that i can 't go into, but it includes mm-hmm. the, the information, provided all of which can stack up to possibly slightly difficult to measure in terms yeah. of funding and then of course there's the care and compassion this country' has shown and my family amongst many others, hundred thousand yes. plus bringing in Ukrainian families and um, having them to provide, providing shelter. Uh, and much other gifting as well. So actually our military gifting is actually only as the smaller proportion of our to- our total even financial aid to Ukraine.
2: Do you think though, I mean obviously Boris Johnson's leadership on this issue was very visible. Yes. Rishi Sunak's only gone there once. It was intriguing not to see him at the Conservative Friends of Ukraine event last night. I know you were there, Liz Truss was there. I think we can probably agree that Boris Johnson would have been there if he was at conference and Rishi Sunak wasn't.
5: So I think actually it's partly to do, but first of all I just want to pay tribute to Boris Johnson. I think his leadership in this was absolutely outstanding and Clearly, world-leading. Mm. Secondly, Rishi was the chancellor funding all of this, and therefore I think his uh, uh, his contribution has been outstanding. And although you're right, he's been to Kiev once. Zelensky, I think, came to Checkers. I think I'm right in saying they spent time together um, there. They have a very close, warm personal relationship as well. And I, I, I sort of, I kind of get the line of questioning about anxiety of, of the UK's commitment, not least because we've had a change of defence secretary as well. But my interest in Ukraine goes back way beyond, I mean, I say the family who came to stay with me. My family, actually, both, on both sides, mother and father's side, were all beaten out of Eastern Europe by pogroms. And so we've seen this happen in Europe before. We cannot allow a tyrant to walk in across Europe and march west. And we have to be the country that is prepared to stand up for that. And I think Britain, for all sorts of historical reasons, some of which, I, to be honest, I, it, I quite, it's kind quite of interesting to try to think why we put ourselves in this position. I don't always know exactly the answer. I remember where I live, just down the road from me, nothing to do with me, nothing to do, it was before I had the family over. There's just a signpost in somebody's garden which just said, Brits support Ukrainians. Yes. And I, later, I knocked on that person's door months later actually and just ask why have you got this it's just so obvious. It's just such an injustice. And there's something maybe it's the Blitz spirit or something else, there's something that connects our countries.
2: We'll get off onto Eastern Europe in just a minute because I think people are obviously intrigued by the decision to send those typhoon jets to Poland. I mean is that are we meant to interpret that as a sign that you, other NATO countries, Poland themselves are worried about Putin extending this invasion into Eastern Europe.
5: Poland have got elections on the fifteenth of this month and as ever with Putin, either the actual or danger of him rattling the saber and trying to destabilise a democratic election, Poland are fantastic friends of Britain. I mean, as people will know, that many Polish fought in the in the, in the RAF, actually, in the Second World War. Actually, my surname is Polish. Shaps is actually a, was spelled S Z E P S. I think when my forefathers came here, and 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 we we are very very close to Poland, and I want they they requested some assistance, some reassurance, and I, as I announced on Sunday, have sent some typhoons to help provide some of that reassurance to Poland and the Polish people. Again, we'll always be by their side in the same way as we're by the Ukrainian side.
2: I mean, uh, Putin and the Russians are clearly not willing to hand back any of the territory that they've taken since 2014. So how do you actually see this panning out?
5: It's a very good question. Of course, none of us can No, for sure, when we make these kind of predictions, not least because almost everybody's prediction was wrong about the original invasion. Just in terms of progress so far, Russia came in, about half of the territory they've taken has now been, I think more than now, taken back by Ukraine, and the offensive is still making slow progress. It's important to understand the extent to which Russia have dug in their troops. They've got not just landmines and a lot of them, but barbed wire and trenches and several lines of defense so there's a very very tough uh, in- environment it's not surprising that that won't be a fast process I think developments in Crimea have been quite significant because for the first time since 2014 when Crimea was taken without a formal war and they just invaded and um, of course Russia already had the ports there under lease for the first time, Russia's finding it can't operate its Black Sea fleet with impunity in that area. And so that is a, it opens up an interesting question. I can't tell you exactly how and where and when the war will end, but I'm absolutely certain and clear it will not end with a Putin victory.
2: Um, have you been briefed on um, Prigozhin's son, taking over the Wagner group and can you tell us anything about what you know about him or what that might mean
1: yes and no right ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the telegraph to stay on top of all of our ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground subscribe to the telegraph you can get your first three months for just one pound at www.telegraph.co.uk slash the latest Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control... There is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do please refer to podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As the disinformation war ramps up, we are relying on your support more than ever. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You'll find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Rachel Porter and Giles Gere. Executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.